continue on this morning in Genesis. <clears throat> We've been going through the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and this morning we're on to Joseph. Jacob, of course, was renamed Israel. He reconciled with his brother Esau. Israel has 12 sons, and Joseph is the 11th of them. And he really picks up from chapter 37 in Genesis through the end of the book to chapter 50, tells us the story of Joseph. So I invite you to listen carefully and listen well. We'll start reading in Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll skip over to verse 12 and continue from there. Here once again, the word of the Lord. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing his flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah's father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And on to verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? 
Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on him, mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, well, this morning, I want to tell you the rest of Joseph's story. And then I want, to, I want us to see how Joseph's story actually answers many of the difficulties and problems that were initially introduced to us in the beginning of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis begins in paradise and it ends with Joseph dying and being buried under the ground. Begins in paradise, ends in death. But I also want you to see that Joseph's story, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their lives together are beginning to answer some of the difficulties which we initially see. So there's some intertextual references going on in the book of Genesis and Joseph's story brings these to culmination. Secondly, I want to show you how a couple of the themes, really one central theme with two parts, in Joseph's story helps us to understand what is his story actually all about. And then I also want to connect it to Jesus and, and to us. So there's actually a lot this morning. Uh, so let's buckle up and let's hang on and see how we do. So you heard part of Joseph's story here. Uh, Joseph is the 11th of 12 brothers, and he's favored by his father. But remember Jacob. Jacob was the younger brother to whom the promise came, and he also tends to favor this young son of his. He's given him a cloak, a robe, a tunic that we learned growing up, many of us, was a coat of many colors, the Hebrew's a little iffy on this. It could be a cloak with long sleeves or a tunic that comes all the way down to his ankles. It's a long tunic, which we find out later in the book of Exodus is given to the priests to wear. So Joseph's robes, whether it's long or whether it's unique in color or both, is really meant to set him apart as an authority, even though he's young, over his brothers. He represents his father in a particular way. And his coat kind of shows this without um, any mistaking it. We also see that Joseph tends here at the beginning to enjoy this role just a little bit. He's 17. You know any 17-year-olds that have really thought they had life figured out already? Um, enjoyed maybe positions of authority they found themselves in. We find out that Joseph is actually the family tattletale. That's what we learn about him first, is that he was immediately, upon his introduction, giving a bad report of his brothers to his father. 
Yeah, Dad, let me tell you about these guys. I asked this morning in the early service whether Lily or Anna knew anyone who ever played the role of Tattletale in our family. And the, the hands went both directions, right? Yeah. So, so this is Joseph's place. He's been given authority, though he is young, and in that culture would not naturally have that. He's lifted up above his brothers, and he enjoys informing on them to their father. They re- resent it. They do not like it. And it gets so bad that we see what happens. They decide they want to kill him. To go from being a tattletale to wanting to kill him is a pretty drastic step. We actually skipped a portion of the text where we see just how far Joseph's apparent uh, self-importance has gone. He has two dreams. We actually know that they're from the Lord and that they're true. But the way in which Joseph shares these dreams apparently is a little bit lacking. There's some immaturity there. Joseph dreams first that he is a bale of wheat, as are his brothers. And they, those bales of wheat fall down in front of his bale of wheat. They are, in effect, um, honoring Jacob, uh, Joseph's superiority. As if that were not enough, after letting them know about this, he says that actually I've had another dream. And I saw the moon, I saw the sun and the moon and the stars, and they all fell down in front of me. And Jacob says, understanding himself to be the sun and his wife to be the moon and the brothers to be the stars, says, Joseph, do you really think that we are all going to fall down and worship you in this way? He puts him in his place just a bit. He has a rebuke there for his young son. And yet the text also tells us in that section that Jacob heard what he was saying and he thought about it a little differently. We might know why. Jacob, again, being the younger to whom the promise of God has come. Jacob being the one, the the pivotal moment of his life came when he had a dream. You remember this from like three weeks ago? He's on this journey and he goes to sleep and puts his head on a rock and he see in his dream he sees a ladder going from earth to heaven, the angels ascending and descending upon it, the Lord over it, who speaks to him a word of promise, that he, though he is younger, will be the one through whom the promises of God and his covenant is complete and his family will come back to this place, to this land of Canaan, and dwell there and be blessed there, and that, in fact, his family will be a blessing to the whole world. That again is stated. Jacob hears his young son's dream, and though it seems boisterous and bold and perhaps a bit conceited, he recognizes maybe there's something to this. And that, of course, comes out of his own experience with God. The brothers, though, have no such response. They grow increasingly angry. They see Joseph coming. They determine they will lay hold of him and kill him. Reuben, the oldest, says, no, no, let's... Let's just cast him into the pit, down into Sheol. And so they do. They, they lay hold of him. They rip that multicolored coat right off his back, calling him the dreamer and say, let's see how this dream comes to fruition. They throw him in the pit, down into a well which is dry. Effect, in effect, throwing him down into death. We talked about how in stories, often there's this drive away from home. It's compelled We saw it in Jacob. Esau chased him out. Death from a brother. So there's this move outward, but then there's also this 
little death and rebirth that happens. This little death and resurrection at the beginning that changes things. And Jacob's, of course, was his dream. Before it, he was the heel grabber. After it, he was the one whom God had called and made a covenant promise to. Uh, Joseph is the same here. Before it, he is the honored one, having authority and status in his family. After he goes down into the pit, comes out the other side, and he's accursed, he's a slave, he goes down far from home into Egypt. We see that little death and resurrection happening. As Joseph experiences this, the brothers sit back and, and just eat right beside the pit. Cold and callous, isn't it? Why, surely Jacob is calling out to save him, to not do what they, he hears them saying they're going to do. They just sit down and have lunch. That might tie in later. And so Joseph then is taken up by slave traders. Uh, the, these Ishmaelites are actually going down into Egypt with balm, with spice, and with myrrh. These are actually some products early on that are used uh, to create healing balms or incense. So there's hidden even in this that Joseph's sojourn into Egypt is going to be for the healing of something. And they take him down and they put him into the home of Potiphar, uh, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And so here he is, a slave, but over time God blesses Joseph and through Joseph then blesses Potiphar. Everything is how in his house is going splendidly well. Potiphar recognizes Joseph is capable and he has some measure of God's blessing, surely. And so he gives him a new garment. He now has authority and status in Potiphar's house. In fact, he is in command of Potiphar's house. He rules over it. Everything in Potiphar's home has been given over to jo Joseph's responsibility as a steward, except for Potiphar's wife, who sees Joseph and begins to approach Joseph. But Joseph rebuffs her at every point and at every time. Instead, choosing to be faithful, yes, to God, but also to the master who is over him. Until Potiphar's wife lays hold of his tunic. The one that symbolized his authority and his position in the house. And ripped it from him as he tried to get away from her. She says, holding it up, this man has attacked me. And Potiphar then takes him. And he must have suspected because that would have been a death sentence, must have suspected this wasn't true, he casts him down again into Sheol, into the pit, into the prison. You begin to see a repeated pattern here. He's in the prison, cast down into the bottom of it. When lo and behold, Pharaoh's, because this was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. The prison was here in his house. And when Pharaoh sends someone to prison, he sends them to Potiphar. And he sends, being upset for some reason with his cupbearer and his bread maker, he sends them to Potiphar and they are thrown into jail. They're there with Joseph. They begin to have some dreams. And Joseph, upon hearing their dream, asks if they would share it. And they do. The dreams are connected, but they go two very different directions. The cupbearer comes to Joseph and shares his dream, and Joseph, hearing it, says, In three days, Pharaoh's going to call you back into his court. 
And he's going to reinstate you as the cupbearer. And when he does that, would you please remember me before Pharaoh? Speak well of me that maybe my station would improve. The bread maker comes and shares his dream with Joseph. And Joseph hears it and interpreting it, he says, in three days, Pharaoh is going to call you to his court. And he's going to put you to death. Both things happen and are true. Except when the cupbearer makes his way back into Pharaoh's good graces, he does not remember Joseph. Until Pharaoh has a dream of his own. And he wonders if anyone can interpret it. No one can until the cupbearer remembers, oh yeah, there was Joseph down in the prison. I might have someone who can interpret this dream. And he brings Joseph, lowly Joseph, to stand before Pharaoh. And Joseph says, interpretation of dreams belong to God. But tell me what your dream is and we'll see if God has something to share. And of course, that turns out to be there's going to be seven years of plenty. And then there will be seven years of famine. And Joseph advises Pharaoh, what you need to be doing in these seven years of plenty is, is storing up some food so that when those seven years of famine come, you can survive and, and indeed flourish. Pharaoh recognizes in Joseph that God is with him, in part because Joseph couched his interpretation of Pharaoh's dream in God's authority and ability to interpret it. He was pointing away from himself, even in this place where he could have asked for things, he directs Pharaoh to God. And so Pharaoh, even recognizing this, honors and respects the God of Joseph and raises Joseph up and puts on him something like a golden tunic and sets him upon uh, over his house, which includes the entire nation. And now lowly Joseph, who had these dreams, has come to this place of prominence through ups and downs and challenges to the right hand of the most powerful man in this thousand-year <laughs> empire. Famine does indeed come after Joseph has worked very hard to store up goods and they are very well prepared. And Joseph's family in Canaan is beginning to get hungry, experiencing the difficulties of famine, and so they come down to Egypt. Jacob, Israel, sends his sons to go to Egypt and they appear there before Joseph who recognizes them, though they don't recognize him. Who could have imagined who would be standing before them? And they engage in conversation. He inquires after a youngest brother who isn't there with them, and so he sends them back with food and also a bit of trickery, testing them by stowing away some of the cups that were there in the house in the goods and some of the payment which, with which they meant to pay back in the bags to see how they would respond. They, he sends them back to the father and they bring their youngest brother back sometime later and Joseph meets them and sets a feast for them and feeds them and forgives them and brings his father and their whole family down into Egypt and gives them a land and a place and an abundance for them. It is an absolutely incredible story, isn't it? I mean, just on a, just face value, it's a great story. But what I want you to see is that some of Joseph's story actually, along with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, answers some of the difficulties we see in the beginning of the book of Genesis. In the, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, there's the creation and the fall. 
there's actually three distinct areas where we see a particularly egregious kind of fall or sin in the opening chapters. And Abraham's story and his descendants begin to bring healing to those falls. The first fall, of course, is the one that we most readily recognize, Adam and Eve in the garden, where they turn away from God as the father, or the God as the, as the one through whom everything is given to them, and the one in whom they have life and being and communion again, the one whose image they bear, they turn away from God as father. And so when God begins through a series of covenants to restore the world to his fatherhood, he calls a man named Abram, which means father of a multitude, and renames him Abraham, which means father of many nations, and begins to work in him who has no children yet and grow his family until eventually they are a blessing to all the nations. A turn away from God as father resulted in God setting up a father for a new nation that he would shape and form and mold until they could be a blessing to everyone and all come under the fathership or fatherhood of God. Interesting connection, right? Secondly, the second great fall that we see when you're out of communion with God, at enmity to some degree with God, you are necessarily at enmity with others. Cain and Abel, right? The first generation of human beings, Cain murders his brother. The first generation after Abraham, the father of many nations, is made a promise to by God to bless the whole world. He has two sons who are at enmity with each other even from the womb. We've talked about this. And yet the story of Cain and Abel does not match exactly the story of Jacob and Esau because we see that in the story of Jacob and Esau, renamed Israel, meeting again with Esau and his 400 men, that there was actually forgiveness and reconciliation and a sharing of gifts, not murder. Things are beginning to change in the story of Genesis. The beginning doesn't match what God is doing now by His grace to restore humanity. The third fall, and this gets a little complicated, I might go into all of it, um, has to do, if you're out of communion with God, you're at enmity with other human beings, but you also are wrongly oriented towards spiritual realities. Idolatry, major problem in the Old Testament. And still, right? John Calvin says our hearts are idol-making factories. Um, we just constantly set other things up in place of God and direct our attention and sacrifices and, and our goals towards them rather than towards the Lord. How is this manifested early in Genesis? This, this third element of fall is when the sons of God, which is a designation for angels, which include both the angels who are faithful to God, but also the fallen angels or demons, when the sons of God begin to intermarry with the daughters of Eve. So now the fallen angels and humanity, the demonic presences or powers or principalities, are engaged with humanity in a way that's bringing two things that should be kept apart together. And we see that in Joseph's own story because Joseph is part of this family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this unique family that God is making to be a blessing to the world, we see Joseph connected with Egypt, a foreign nation. Things that we wonder, 
God is making Israel be distinct and separate and apart. How does that also coincide with the nations they're intended to bless? So we, we see a beginning of an answer to this, even in this first book of the Bible, because we see Joseph, who goes his journey, and eventually, after Pharaoh comes to recognize the God of Joseph, marries the priest, uh, the, the, the daughter of the priest of Egypt. And then Jacob's own family comes, and they have a place there, but it is after they come to recognize the true God. And of course, the I mean, this is strategic in a way. The daughter of the priest who is supposed to lead the people in worshiping other gods comes alongside Joseph, who is in his very position. Why? Because of the God who has revealed himself to Pharaoh through him. You see a conversion beginning to happen to recognize and honor the true God. This is also hinted at where uh, the story of Joseph occurs in Genesis 37 and the story of Judah occurs in Genesis 38. Joseph comes to marry essentially a foreign woman. The importance about that is not that she is foreign or not that it is a woman. The important thing is this is a person in the midst of a people who worships another god. That god has to be set aside in order to join God's family. A similar thing happens with Judah, the brother who says, hey, we shouldn't kill him. What good would that do us? Why don't we sell him? We'd at least get a little something. Judah, in chapter 38, the very next one, it's like an interlude between, in the midst of Joseph's story, uh, inappropriately is joined with Tamar, who in, actually is his daughter-in-law, and is also one who comes from a foreign people. He is inappropriately joined. And so this question is set up at the beginning with Joseph and Judah. How are the foreign nations rightly joined into God's family? That makes sense? It's a little complicated, but it's an answer to that initial question that is set up in the first fall. When the sons of God, the demons who become idols, are joined to humanity. There's, a, there's an undoing of that as people come to give their worship to the true God. So there's some intertextual references happening here uh, in this book. And I think they're really instructive for us. Because we are also, think we're God's people. We've been called together in service to Christ in the midst of a world to whom we are supposed to be sent. Who, who, who don't know God and don't worship God as such. And so we have a place very similar to Joseph's. How, how do we do this? And perhaps there's an, a bit more of an answer to come. Um, one thing that we see uh, in Joseph's own particular story is one thing that happens over and over, and I've pointed it out already a little bit, that shows us the key to this last big section of the book of Genesis. Trying to understand what Joseph, what's Joseph doing? Joseph is given, though he's the younger, authority in his family. And it's represented by this cloak, this tunic of many colors, of long sleeves, however that comes together. That is removed from him by his brothers who cast him down into death and then he is raised up again. They dip that tunic in blood trying to pass this off as an attack by a wild beast when they, in fact, the brothers, in fact, are the wild beasts who have ripped Joseph apart and ripped him from his family. This is clearly the fault of his brothers they have done wrong. 
they have done the equivalent of murdering him. The same penalty is handed out for murder or selling someone into slavery in the Old Testament. Death. They've done the same thing. They're culpable for that. However, you might also say that Joseph has some little bit of complicity here. Because he is immature. He wears his garment around and he is very proud of his position of prominence over his older brothers. He's constantly reporting back to the father. He's very pleased with himself. He rubs it in when he can. We see that he is not actually ready to receive the promise that God gives him in his dreams. He's doing it wrongly. He's doing it in an immature way. This position of authority over them. And so, he has some little bit of responsibility, not that they ever should have condemned him to death or sold him to slavery, but he's had some contribution in the negative to his circumstance. The second time this happens, he goes down into the pit of the prison. He comes up in Potiphar's house. He's given a new cloak, which identifies him as the chief servant over all of Potiphar's house. This is removed from him, by Potiphar's wife. This time, not because he is complicit, but because he's been faithful. It is because of his righteousness this time that he is accused falsely and then thrown back into the pit. You know, sometimes in life we find ourselves just making that pattern, going down into hard things and then emerging again. Sometimes God gives us episodes in our lives which can feel like suffering, because and as a result of our sin. But sometimes we experience suffering because we are faithful to God. And that's what happens to the church. If you read the New Testament, that was happening all the time. So if you're going to um, follow Christ, you will suffer. Because Christ was always faithful, He suffered and even went down into the pit, into death. And so we have to sort of figure out what's the difference here. How do we encounter these episodes in our own lives and how do we distinguish what God is doing in them? I think some of it is a self-reflective thing. You know, do I need to repent of something in my life? Or secondly, um, do I need to continue to be faithful and, and, and receive that suffering as a participation in Christ's for the healing of the world? He's thrown into the pit after his garment's removed and then he's raised up again. This is the pattern of Joseph's life right here. A, a little death of being raised up again, always so that God's purposes will be accomplished. Pharaoh clothes Joseph himself with garments which set him apart. Um, in all of this, we can see God's sovereignty at play. When immature Joseph was relaying his dreams to his brothers and his family, all he could have imagined was that he was somehow going to be the most important in his family. Little did he know God's plans for him, which was for him to rule the nations and to integrate those who were far from God into the family of God through his own lived experience of marrying the priest's daughter and all of those things coming together. Little could he imagine, perhaps, how much his life mirrors the life of Jesus. So here's the third part. Like Joseph, Jesus was a shepherd. When we meet Joseph, he's out keeping flocks. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his friends. 
Like Jesus, or like Joseph, Jesus was also laid hold of by his brothers and falsely accused and thrown down into the pit. I got to see the prison cell uh, in Israel where Jesus was held before his crucifixion beneath the Caiaphas's house, down into the pit, and then they killed him, ripping his garment from him and treating him as the scapegoat. Like the brothers dip the coat in the blood of the goat. Jesus is also the one who goes down into death and emerges again and calls his whole family together around him and feeds us at the table. Just like he gathered his brothers into the table that they might feast with him. Uh, just as Joseph wept when he brought his brothers around the table and spoke words of forgiveness over them. So Jesus cried out to God the Father from the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. Just as Joseph reconciles and saves literally the whole world, known in that area, during a time of famine, so Jesus, because God has raised him up to the right hand of God the Father and given him dominion and authority and power over everything, uh, Christ has saved the world. The stories of Joseph and Jesus in the first book of the Bible line up so incredibly well. We see here how that is an answer to the fall. Away from God the Father, Jesus in His Sonship adopts us and we share through Him as co-heirs with Christ, as children of God the Father. He has now brought the whole world in through Himself back into that right relationship we lost in that first fall. So too, Jesus is the one who forgives his brothers and also offers reconciliation in the church. As soon as we say the assurance of pardon on Sunday mornings, reconciliation with God, we say, let the peace of Christ be uh, to you. We are members of a single body. We have reconciliation with each other. Just as we see um, uh, Jesus' life as it's connected with Joseph's answering the, the third fall, humanity caught up with spiritual powers and idolatry that are not true and are not for our good, we see Jesus integrating not just Israel and Egypt. We see Jesus bringing together Jew and Gentile into one family. Here's the last illustration of that. There was a story of Jesus meeting a foreign woman at a well in John's Gospel. A foreign woman, marriage, Joseph, Judah, also Isaac, whose wife Rebekah was met by the servant of Abraham at a well. Also, uh, uh, Jacob, when he comes to the well in Haran, sees Rachel, his wife. Jesus, this is a scene of like marriage possibility here. Jesus and a foreign woman, a Samaritan at a well, who in fact has had a lot of difficulty becoming integrated into a, a marriage, but also into the life of God. Jesus says, you've been married five times. And even now you're living with a man who is not your husband. And he says, if, if you come here to, to dip water out of this well, I, I will give you water that when you drink of it, you will never be thirsty again. And she comes to faith in Jesus and trusts in him and knows reconciliation with God as father 
And so no, can no reconciliation with other people in the world. And she also, because she recognizes her family and her village has been worshiping a false god, goes back to them and says, I met a man who told me everything I ever did. And so she engages in this work of evangelism to bring the Gentiles into relationship with God through Jesus. That's where we stand in the world right now. And if you do that, be careful not to do it like immature Joseph, trumpeting, look at me, I'm, I'm saved, I'm in right relationship with God, walking around as if you have some measure of authority that's about you. Be careful that when you do that, you do that as Joseph when he's more mature, through faithfulness and righteousness and obedience to God and faithfulness to your master Jesus. That witness might also bring suffering upon you or us, but it is also the promise of God that he will raise us up no matter how far we go, that the whole world might be joined to him. We're part of that story now. And Genesis, man, it's got a lot in there. Uh, but you're included too. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.